0: Family would usually go on vacation, and so the dad this time had a different idea of going on vacation. He said, "I just want my kids to experience more of the outdoors. We really haven't done that. We we want—I want them to experience the outdoors, go out into nature, and and just really enjoy God's creation." And so they they went kind of on a camping, you know, sightseeing trip. And one day on their vacation, they they got out. They decided they were going to rent bikes, and they were going to go sightseeing. And so they went out, and they were riding bikes. And dad saw a sign, you know, kind of on a nature trail that, that said, you know, kind of pointing in the direction of a nature camp. And so he said, oh, that sounds like fun. Maybe we'll we'll go there and see if there's some things that my kids can do and maybe get them entertained for a while. And so they're, they're riding along. And as they're riding along, uh, it was a, about a couple minutes into the the trip that the dad realized where, in fact, he was actually Leading the, his family. What tipped him off was the fact that coming in their direction, coming from the opposite direction, were six bicycle riders, and not one of them had a stitch of clothing on them. You see, the sign that he had read said naturalist camp. And it was about that time that the dad realized exactly what naturalist camp meant unfortunately it was too late to turn around the bike riders are about on them all he could do is kind of hold his breath and wait till they pass he's thinking to himself what in the world am i going to tell my kids about what's just happened and it was about that moment that his five-year-old son blurted out um dad they're not wearing any helmets (laughs) of all the things to notice right but helmets are important especially when you're talking about the armor of God. And that's exactly where our Armor Up series takes us this morning as we've been walking through Paul's words in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6. And so if you haven't already done so, turn there with me in your Bibles. Here's what he says, starting in verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So next week we'll talk about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But today we come to, as Paul says in verse 17, the helmet of of salvation. Take up the helmet of salvation. You know, over the past several years, the discussion of of proper headgear has really intensified quite a bit. A lot of that has to do with the, the realm of athletics, the growing discussion about the understanding of brain trauma and brain injuries and how they affect the course of your life and your thinking, not just in the short term, but over the course of decades. How do we kind of process all of this? In fact, Probably for some of you sports man, fans, you know that just a few years ago, there was a massive lawsuit that was filed from the Players Association. The NFL players, former players in particular, filed a lawsuit against the NFL to kind of recoup some you know, money for paying for medical bills and just understanding how this affects the life of these players who have played football for so long, these brain injuries, these brain traumas. They originally settled for three quarters of a billion dollars. That's billion with a B. So $750 million. Uh, but I was reading that they think the actual settlement's probably going to come closer to about double that, about $1.4 billion. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. And the issue of concussions and, and head injuries goes just beyond the, the realm of, of uh, athletics. It's also a major concern in, in fighting and warfare even today. You think about how much money and time and resources the U.S. government and military are pouring into science and technology in an effort to, to say, hey, how, how do we improve the headgear? How do we improve the, um, just the protection of not just our heads on the outside, but our minds on the inside, our brains on the inside? And Um, trying to develop better and better gear in the field of of warfare. And even beyond that, some of you probably wear some type of protective headgear when it comes to your job or your field uh, or occupation to protect your your head at all times. All of us are familiar with the importance of protective headgear. Even when you go to ride a bike, hopefully with some clothes on, but even when you go to ride a bike, you you know the importance of, of wearing a helmet. And as much as we're learning these days about the reality of concussions and what brain trauma and brain injury does over the course of a person's life, the reality of, of the importance of headgear is nothing new, right? We've known this for for centuries, and, and and Rome had a huge belief, as we're talking about the Roman soldier, had a huge belief and an understanding of of the importance of headgear and having the proper headgear, especially when it came to protecting your head and surviving and weathering the battle. A Roman helmet really served two functions, and we're kind of going to build off of these two functions. Both of these are in your notes. But the first one was that the helmet is, is, it was a protective device, right? Which makes sense. I don't have to tell you that. But the helmet is meant to protect. And, and ancient armies, ancient Roman armies knew the importance of protecting the head. And so if you've seen pictures of the Roman helmet, they were the finest of, of protective headgear of that day. And really the precursor to many of the, the helmets that we see throughout um, modern times and up into modern times. They were also, by the way, the heaviest hel- of, of the armor. It was super heavy. This, this protective device on your head was super heavy. They were made of bronze. A lot of times they were so heavy that they would, and think about what we have in technology today, but back then they would put sponges on the inside of their helmets to kind of support the head as the weight of the helmet was so incredibly large compared to the weight of your head. And so they would size them up to the, the person's helmet. They, they had great technology back then. We would think we've got great technology today, and we do, but they were they were cutting edge on a lot of this stuff because they knew the importance of protecting the head in battle. And it was so solid and, and so heavy. I read somewhere that they said that the— Obviously, modern equipment would do some damage, but battle axes, swords, things like that, you'd have to do, uh, swing pretty hard to do some damage. It could withstand quite a heavy blow. But the helmet was more than just for protecting, which is obviously what we first think of. It, it was also, though, meant to proclaim. The, he- the helmet was, was a source of proclamation. The Roman helmet was, was really a fascinating and even flamboyant piece of armor at the time. It was highly decorated with all kinds of engravings, and um, you know they, they, they had all kinds of stitching on the sides of it. And of course, you know the plume, and I'll get to that in just a second. But it wasn't just a bucket on someone's head, right? This, this was a flamboyant piece of, of armor. They used it to, to send a very specific and intentional artistic message. A lot of times they've had, or they would have like a peaceful scene on the side or a, a fruitful harvest on the, engraved into it. In essence, to say that if you submit to Rome's reign, Rome's reign will bring a, a rich peace. It will bring an abundant harvest as long as you submit to Rome's reign. And in many ways, it was the precursor for what we see today with helmets and things like that. You put decals on them to kind of send a message and proclaim who you are or what team you represent or what you are all about. In fact, these Roman helmets could even be further accessorized when they were going to go into like a a victory parade or they had some special uh, ceremony that they were engaged in. And they would have this, as I mentioned, this plume of either decorative uh, feathers or a lot of the times you've seen them probably have what the the dyed horsehair that's probably the ones that you've seen the red dyed horsehair and so they had these just flamboyant helmets that were meant to convey the rank and the authority that one had and also just the the flamboyance of Rome and to and to, to, pro, to proclaim what Rome was all about so what does it mean we talk about those things what does it mean then when Paul says to take up the helmet of salvation. What does that mean? I think it means a couple of things for our lives. The first one I would just say is it means you need to watch your head, right? And maybe that's not groundbreaking, but I think it's important. Sometimes we forget to do the obvious, as we've mentioned throughout this series. When it comes to salvation, though, don't just think, when when Paul talks about salvation here, the, the helmet of salvation, I think it's very easy for us to think The salvation that you have been given, and once you give your life to Jesus Christ, you have salvation in Jesus Christ. And that's certainly part of the aspect of what Paul is talking about here. But I think it's more than that. I think Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is addressing not just that aspect of salvation. He's bringing another aspect of salvation to light because he's talking to people who are already believers. He's talking to people who have already given their lives to Jesus Christ, who've already received forgiveness, who've already received salvation. So Paul, in essence, when he, you know, through the Holy Spirit, he's not just bringing to light that aspect of of salvation and saying, hey, you need to put on salvation, you need to become a Christian, you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. It's more than that. I think he's also addressing the relationship between salvation and our heads between salvation and our minds, between salvation and the way that you and I think and operate in the life that God has called us to live. You see, a lot of times when we think about salvation, it's very easy for us to think about what, we, what happens to us after we die and salvation beyond the grave that, that Jesus has, has saved us from our sins and one day we get to go to heaven. But there is a lifetime in between what happens when you give your life to Jesus Christ initially and when you one day die or Jesus returns and you go to heaven. And so it's not just what happens to you beyond the grave, but it's, there's also a salvation aspect of what happens to you now while you're living. And, and my mind experiencing a salvation on this side of the grave. For instance, let me just give you a, a couple of scriptures. In Ephesians chapter 4, earlier in, in the book of Ephesians, Paul says, you are taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. He writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, "...to to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind." In Colossians chapter three, verses one and two, he says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now, one of the things that we've talked about in this series is not just about the armor itself, but I think one of the important aspects of understanding the armor is how does the design of the armor tell us about how the enemy is going to attack us? You see, we can talk about the armor. I mentioned this this week. And we can talk about the aspects of the armor. And we can talk about peace and what that means. And we can talk about faith and what that means. And we can talk about righteousness and what that means. And we can talk about all the pieces of the armor, in particular, the spiritual aspect of it. But I think the fact that it is a helmet of salvation tells us something about how the enemy is going to come at us. Does that make sense? The breastplate of righteousness tells us where's the enemy going to come at us when it comes to righteousness. And that's the same with the helmet of salvation. How is the enemy going to come at us when it comes to our salvation? And I think one of the things it tells us is that the enemy is going to come after your head. He's going to come after your thinking. He's going to come after what's going on in your brain. Because oftentimes, not just oftentimes, this is the way it works. What's going on up here gets fleshed out in what's going on out here. The way you think dictates how you operate. And so when, he's, when, when he tells us the helmet of salvation, he's telling the enemy's gonna come after your head. Why? Because just as physiologically, from a physiological standpoint, a head injury can affect so many other aspects of your body, a person's mindset has a huge impact on how you operate and how you live in this world. You know it's it's interesting when you think about our salvation was won at the cross, right? The cross was mounted at a place called Golgotha. You know what Golgotha means? Place of the skull. Don't you find that interesting that our salvation was won at a place called the place of the skull and then the rest of your salvation, your transformation happens in between your skull. Does that make sense? Your salvation was bought and paid for. It was redeemed. It was won at the place of the skull. But then inside the skull, there's a whole nother transformation and salvation that God desires to do and work in you. That's why it's so important to protect our heads and to understand what the helmet of salvation is for protecting our heads. Romans chapter eight, verse five, here's what Paul says. He says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. And so he's explaining Why they live according to the sinful desires. You look at a person's life, okay? Here's here's the way that they're living. Paul's saying they're living that way because that's what their mind's set on. When you engage in certain activities, it's not just that you are doing this. Rewind. What's your thinking? Your thinking is dictating how you're acting and living and the behaviors that you are engaging in. And so those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset set on what the Spirit desires. That's the, way, that's the reason we live the way that we do. We, we live out of a certain mindset. Our lives are the fruit of a certain mindset that we have and, and what we have our minds set upon. He goes on to say this in, in verse six, the mind governed by the flesh is death. That's what it leads to. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. That's what it leads to. And so you, you just think about this, and I don't mean that as a pun. Like, think about it, though. If your brain is not working properly, it affects so many other parts of your body. A brain injury can affect your motor skills. It can affect your ability to think and process information. It can affect your ability to, to speak in a lot of ways. You think about a stroke victim or those things. That brain injuries affect so many other parts of our body. If a soldier's knocked unconscious out on the battlefield, you're, you're pretty much doomed, right? That's why the enemy goes for our head. Because so much damage can be done between our ears, When it comes to how we live in this life and live out the rest of our lives. And yet the problem is, when it comes to living the Christian life, so many Christians leave their spiritual heads unguarded. And all the while, what we're trying to do is just change our behavior. I just got to change this. I got to stop doing this. And God's saying, no, rewind. You need to change the way you think. You need to change the, the, the things that are going on. What are you setting your mind upon? What are you thinking about? What are you engaging in? It's just a fundamental misunderstanding to think I can just change my behavior. God says, no, let me transform the way you think because the reality is what you and I think about what we focus on, what we dwell upon, what we nurture in our minds, what you watch on TV, what you read in your books, what you listen to in music wise, all of that stuff filters into your brain and eventually it's fleshed out in the way you live your life and the behaviors you have and the actions you take. Does that make sense? It's not like so often we just think, well, it's no big deal, right? When I'm taking it. No, what you think about is eventually fleshed out in the way you live your life. You say, well, why am I engaging in these things? Why do I, why do I get angry? Why do I do this? Why are my kids doing What are you thinking about? What are you dwelling on? What are you nurturing in your mind? And in the end, those actions, those behaviors lead to one of two directions. Either they lead in the direction of death, or they lead in the direction of life and peace. And that's why it's not simply about changing our behaviors or our actions, it's about changing the way we think. Or, more appropriately, allowing God to change the way we think. I read earlier from Romans chapter 12, Paul says, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. That word transformed is where we get the word metamorphosis from in the Greek. That word renewing, I probably don't have to explain this, but it means a freshness, a new start, to complete a process of being made new or fresh. Paul goes on to say, I didn't read this earlier, but he goes on to say, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so literally, God is in the process of saving us and transforming us in the way that we think so we can be set free from the lies of the enemy and so that ultimately we can see things the way God sees them, think the way he thinks, and then live the way he's called us to live. Does that make sense? And so life with Christ is, isn't just about saving your soul for eternity beyond the grave. It's about saving your mind and your life and your peace before the grave so that you can live while you're still alive. So you can live and have life and peace in God. And you and I need a helmet of salvation because even though the enemy has lost the war for our souls, Jesus has paid the ransom for your soul, but he still goes after your head. He still goes after your head. And I think that leans to the second thing it means for you and me when it comes to the helmet of salvation. You and I fight from victory, not for victory. You and I fight from victory, not for victory. In 1 Thessalonians chapter five, Paul says this. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. The hope of salvation. What does that mean? What does he mean, the hope of salvation? Well, generally speaking, when you look at Scripture, Scripture talks about salvation in three different ways. Scripture, you read through text, and it'll talk about how you have been saved, past tense. How you are being saved, you're in the process of being saved, present tense. And then also there's an aspect of how one day you will be saved, future tense. And so, when scripture speaks of salvation, there's an aspect in which you are already saved once you begin following Jesus. You give your life to him. You're buried with him in baptism. You are forgiven. Your destination is secure, right? You have a hope that goes beyond this world. You have been saved. There's also an aspect, though, that you are in the process. Of being saved, your future is secure, but you're still in the process of of being saved, of your mind and your heart being changed into the the image of Jesus Christ. God slowly but surely, in some of us, some of us quicker than others, but slowly but surely, God is changing us through His Spirit into the better. You are in the process of being saved, but also there's a future tense that one day you will be saved in the sense that your body will no longer be subject to sin and death and decay that once and for all you will be made perfect. You will be saved. And so you've got salvation as a past tense, as a present tense, and as a future tense. Let me say it this way. And this is in your notes, exactly how it is in your notes in just a second. But let me say it this way. If you are a Christian, not only does God desire to save you and rescue you, from the penalty of sin. He's already done that if you are a Christian, but he desires to do that if you're not. But if you are a Christian, not only has he saved you and rescued you from the penalty of sin through the death of his son, Jesus Christ on the cross, but he also desires to save you and rescue you from the power of sin in this life. And ultimately he will save you and rescue you from the presence of sin once and for all. Does that make sense? So God has saved you from the penalty of sin. God is saving you from the power of sin in your life. And ultimately he will save you one day from the presence of sin when he takes you home to be with him forever in glory. Does that make sense? And so scripture, when it refers to the the hope of salvation, don't read it as, oh, I hope one day that I'll have salvation. Salvation. There's a lot of Christians that struggle with that, right? The ho- I, I'm not sure how many of you have. Asked, I don't know if I'm saved, right? I don't. A lot of Christians struggle with knowing their. Son. That's not what Paul is not when he talks about the hope of salvation. Talking about, but rather he's saying you your hope is secure. You have a hope that. You know, you have a sure hope that one day you will be in eternity. You already have salvation. You know where you're headed. Now you're just living out life in a victory parade. The victory is secured, and, and I'm walking this out in my mind and my character in the process. And one day my body is all going to be, everything's going to be culminated once and for all being saved when I when I spend eternity in heaven. And so my soul is is being saved and my body will be saved. And taking the helmet of salvation is a way of thinking of your life in all three of those aspects. Now, again, the helmet was not just to protect, but it was also meant to proclaim. As I said earlier, it was often worn at at victory parades and and celebrations. There were engravings and decorations on it. So just bear with me for just a moment. Work through this with me. Uh, I've been kind of trying to work it out in my mind. When Paul tells us to take the helmet of salvation, the word for take is, is actually the word to receive. So it's not just you grabbing it and taking a hold of it. Like it's something that you've been given. It's the word for, for to receive or, to, or to, to, to accept. It's something that you have been given. It is a gift of God. Paul writes this earlier in Ephesians chapter two. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And so in that sense, you've already been saved. Now you and I still have to receive it. You and I still have to take it, but the victory has already been won. But then listen to what God says in verse 10. Paul says, For we are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Literally, we are God's work of art. We are God's masterpiece. And so the victory has already been won. But then out of that victory, we live the way God has called us to live and do the good works that he's called us to do. Not because we're trying to obtain victory, but because we've already won the victory. And through putting on the helmet of salvation and and living out of that mindset and doing the good works that God has called us to do, we are proclaiming that victory reminds me of the story of, of some soldiers who were caught in the middle of a firefight. They were cut off from support. They were cut off from the other troops. Finally, headquarters were able to, to kind of re, re uh, communicate with them, reestablish communication, and they called them. They said, Come in, come in, what's your situation? And finally, the response came back Well, we're, you know, the enemy has us surrounded. They're to the north or to the south or to the east or to the west. There's no way they're getting away from us now. That's living from victory. I think there's a great example of this in in Joshua chapter 6. Joshua and the Israelites have entered into the land of Canaan. If you remember, God's already promised them the land of Canaan all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Long before they ever got here, God's already promised it, which is all good and well, but they've still got to walk it out. They've still got to go in and take the land. And so now they've entered the land and they're about to face the first test. They're on the outskirts of a city called Jericho. And you probably, if you grown up in in church and read the Bible stories, you know about, you know, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and and you you probably know this story very well, but they're on the outskirts of this city. And as Joshua and the Israelites are are about to go into take the city, here's what, what God says to Joshua. I find this very interesting. Just think about this in the context. He says, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. And with it, it's king and it's a finding man. God says it, not I will deliver, not present tense, I am delivering, but I have delivered, past tense. It's already it's already been guaranteed. It's already been done. But think about this. This is no, or I wish I had pictures. I should have brought pictures for you or got pictures for you. This is no ordinary city. In fact, uh, A lot of historians say that this is one of the most heavily and oldest fortified cities in the history of the world. Jericho was. It was surrounded by, I'll just give you a a word picture, it was surrounded by a huge embankment all around the city with a stone retaining wall at its base. The retaining wall was some 12 to 15 feet high. On top of that was a mud brick wall, so the the embankment keeps going up at at um, at a slope. On top of that was a mud brick wall six feet thick and some 20 to 25 feet high. And then finally at the crest of the embankment, at the very top of the embankment, was another mud brick wall whose base, when all was said and done, was some 45 to 50 feet above the base of the retaining wall. That's what the Israelites are on the outskirts of. That's what they are looming up or or viewing up at, that's what's looming over them as they stood on the outskirts of the city. And so from an earthly perspective, it was impossible for the Israelites to penetrate this fortified city. From an earthly perspective, it doesn't look like God's given anything into their hands. But God was inviting Joshua to come up and adopt his perspective and to operate from his perspective. And so do you remember what Joshua tells the men to do? Some of you Bible teachers probably know. He tells them, go get the priests, get the fighting men, gather them all up. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to march around the city six days, one time each. One time, march around. Day two, one time, march around for six days, okay? All that time, I want the priests carrying the horns, okay, the trumpets, so they're ready. On the seventh day, I want you to march around the city seven times. I want you to blow the trumpets. I want everybody to give a big shout. Shout. And that's the battle plan. Sounds super effective, right? From an earthly standpoint. Now, it's interesting, I find it, that there's a lot of sevens in this passage. You say, why sevens? In biblical numerology, the number seven is the number for completion. Maybe there's an element where God is saying the battle has already been completed. It's already been won. Now, there's a lot of lessons that you can learn from this. If you remember, they do this and the walls come tumbling down. They go in, they take over the city. There's a lot of lessons that can be learned from from this, but here's what I want us to see. I just wonder if all the marching and the blowing of the trumpets and the shouting was just simply a victory parade that God wanted them to declare the victory before the battle ever took place, in advance of the battle. And what happened after they marched? The walls fell in. The point is God's trying to teach them a lesson. He's trying to say, I want you to understand who the ultimate victor in this is. You're not winning this victory. I've already won it for you. I've already won the battle, but I want you to live from a place of victory and from victory and not just for victory. See, I have already given you the city. You see, the helmet of salvation is about having a mindset in our lives that we are fighting from a place of victory and from victory, not trying to obtain the victory. The victory's already been given. And this idea of, of, of marching around the walls of Jericho even redefines, for me in my mind, it's just kind of Brought to light even just the idea of obedience and what we're doing when we're walking out God's commands and God's instructions. What if obedience to what God tells us to do is really just a victory parade with our helmets of salvation on? In other words, when I follow God's instructions, when I live out the way He's called me to live, no matter how strange it may be or how countercultural it may be or how it, the, the world views it or how difficult it may be, I'm saying, you know what, God, I, it, does, it may not make sense, but I'm going to obey you because I'm walking out of victory. And I know that the life you've called me to live, I've already gotten the victory, but the life you've called me to live leads to life and peace, and I'm following that way. And when I do that, my attitude, my mind changes about his instructions. No longer do I view obedience as a funeral procession, right? I mean, how many Christians view obedience, or, or even non-Christians? Well, you do that? You, you, why do you do No, it's not a funeral procession, although I will say there is an element where you are dying to yourself, so it is, it is a dying to your— that's the funeral procession. But ultimately, I, say, I see obedience not just as a way to obtain the victory— but I've already gotten the victory. The victory's already been won because it's through dying to myself and my perspective and my way of doing things and being, having my eyes open to God's way of doing things and his perspective on things that I really do find life and peace. But God invites me to see it with my mind, to, 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 to be transformed up here and to align my will with his will and my body and my actions will follow. You can't do it the other way. You, you, you can't try and, what's that old phrase? Fake it till you make it. No, you've got to allow God to change in here so that you can walk it out, out there. And so think about it practically. Instead of giving back to God monetarily, tithing, what if we didn't see that as a burden but what if we saw it as a victory parade, proclaiming what God has given to us? What if moral purity, which is so rare in, in our culture, sexual purity, moral purity, what if we saw that as not a burden that we have to live under, but as a, a testimony and a proclamation of the victory that, that's already been won? What if when we are treated uh, wrongly and and people sin against us and, and, and that command to love our enemies, what if we didn't see that as a burden, but we saw it as a way to proclaim the kingdom of God in our lives because we are living from victory and not for victory? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, I love this, but thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession. That's why it's a helmet of salvation. It doesn't just protect, it proclaims. And that's why you and I can march forward in obedience with whatever challenge comes our way, because God has given you the helmet of salvation so that you can march confidently from victory and not for victory. God has saved you from the penalty of sin through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. He desires to save you from the power of sin in your life right here, right now, and moving on until your last days on this earth. And ultimately, he will save you, mind, body, heart, and soul, and everything when Jesus comes in glory. And we will join him in the ultimate victory parade. But until then, we put on the helmet of salvation. Hopefully, I've given you enough reason this morning to not leave home without.